Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, joined by my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, not like always, I am joining you from Eastern Standard Time today. Normally, it's you who travels back to Florida to do that, but I am today in South Carolina on a Lentz family vacation. So I appreciate you working with my strange schedule to accommodate our recording this week. Wait, isn't... I mean, you've gone back to Ohio. I have, but I feel like normally our recording hasn't been affected by it. Am I wrong? True, true. But you've also traveled like 80,000 times this year. Well, it's not necessarily that I've traveled so much. It's just that I've also had family coming into L.A. You know, we we, we have an active family social life. You get married, you get a second family, it, it go, that's how it goes. That's that's true, but you've also logged like 800 movies. That is also true, because I watch them at night, when things are not happening anymore, and I'm alone. <laughs> Except for my nice. sleeping spouse. Alright, let's... You know who tell... else enjoys dysfunctional families? <laughs> that was awful. It's Wes Anderson. That was... Yeah, that, that segue would get it. Yeah, we didn't get... We didn't give out our awards last week. That's right. I see. I always I, I do forget about the the awards <laughs> when it comes to uh, when it comes to our blend sometimes. So my apologies, listeners. We appreciate those dedicated who are better eagle-eared listeners. But we do now have our spreadsheet. We do now have a spreadsheet. That's right. We're getting more organized, folks. We're trying. We're putting in the behind-the-scenes work to make this program better for those listening along. And what we can do today, Christian is bring up our any awards that you would like to give out we can give them out on this episode because we will be talking through our respective wes anderson ranked lists the director of course has 11 films now that asteroid city has released and we've covered three of them already on the show so if you want to dish out some awards as you go feel free this is this is the funniest thing I feel like you just chose some of the worst selection for us to have a nice conversation. <laughs> because I quite like some of these films. I was going to say, I noticed some of your Letterboxd reviews coming in as you were working on your rewatches for this episode. And it really does seem like there's it's not going to be a Wes Anderson love fest for me versus a hate fest from you. It's really just going to be a difference of opinion <laughs> as we sort out these lists. Uh, and and you just chose some movies I can't do, man. I, I chose you the chose... bottom of your list, and, and that's okay, Christian. That's okay. So, folks, what today's episode will look like is we're actually going to go through his career chronologically. So we'll go movie by movie, and Christian and I will share where it places on our personal ranking lists, and then we will share our full lists at the end of the episode to see how we compare should we also tell the listeners that this is the last ever episode of Cinema Drip? <laughs> you got to stop saying that, Christian. Christian scared it, it is... a friend of the show, Nick Viner, recently by telling him it was the last episode. When it is only and, a and half that is... I mean, no, that's a full truth. <laughs> <laughs> that is right, folks. We are going to be rebranding the show. We're going to be changing up the name, the format a little bit, and obviously we'll, we'll get a new, uh, new, some new artwork. For, that will release onto podcatchers to go along with that new branding. We're going to get a new email. We're going to get a new. We're going to get new social media accounts. We're going to um, as as I have a I have a friend who has appeared in many many movies and TV shows, and uh, I don't think I've talked to you about her. But she was like, Christian, just get your celebrity friends to endorse it. And I go, look, if you want to, <laughs> I mean, if you want to endorse it, I'm. <laughs> You're the one with celebrity friends. You got connections in high places, so we need you to handle that, Christian. I can keep telling my dad, devoted listener of the show, Machan Lentz. They listened. I do. He made my sister listen to one of our Wes Anderson episodes on the drive down to South Carolina. So, (laughs) thanks, Dad. I do. What's the best way to put this? I I. It does look like I invite more people onto the show than you do. You definitely do, and I appreciate you for it. (laughs) let's okay let's talk Wes Anderson we're gonna talk Wes Anderson folks so Christian before we go through with the format I'm gonna make things wonky just a little bit 
because last week we discussed Asteroid City, the brand new movie. And I want to kind of use that just as a barometer and see where that ranks on your list versus where it ranks on mine. And then we'll go back and start talking through from the beginning. So, of course, if you missed last week's episode, the brand new release that follows the simultaneous stage play titled Asteroid City set in 1955 versus a TV episode about the production of the play, large ensemble cast, some folks playing both their play characters and the actors playing them. It's received generally positive reviews, although notably not from one Christian Ubius, although it did receive a positive review from me. So Christian, where does Asteroid City rank number one through 11 for you on your Wes Anderson list? Is number one good or is number one bad? Number one is good. It's your number one favorite. Okay, uh, this is 11. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this movie I hate. This movie I cannot stand. <laughs> oh my goodness. I... Hater. I... I... You cannot say that I'm a hater, especially when we get to a certain movie on this list. Okay, so I can say that you're a hater, mostly because that your reaction is so different from... Not all of the reactions I've seen, but most. A lot of critics are saying this is their favorite recent Wes Anderson. Some even saying this is the best movie he's ever made. I haven't talked to too many average Joes about their thoughts on Astro City, but the two people who I know who've seen it have given positive reviews. Maybe not glowing, but still positive. So, you're a bit of a hater. I I, I will say, I I was with a friend yesterday because we were talking about... We were talking about movies that we absolutely hate and i said man i hate phantom thread and she looks at me and she goes hate phantom thread and i go oh this is why we're friends your your cult grows christian and i will not stand for it we'll have a discussion after this my ranking of asteroid city however is not too much higher despite how incensed i am that it's number 11 for you it's actually number seven right now i will say there is not a movie the the lowest ranked film on this list still gets a three and a half out of five rating for me on Letterboxd. So, in my opinion, Wes Anderson has not made any bad movies. I think Asteroid City lands in the lower half, just because it's a lot to wrap your head around. It's very complex, and I think for some people that has been immensely satisfying. For me, it wasn't as angering, obviously, as it was for you. I still quite liked the movie, but I just didn't feel like I could really get my you know my mind fully wrapped around Asteroid City, and I'd like to watch it again and see if that opinion changes now that I know the approach that he's taking with the film. The well, this is also the issue. I when I really dislike a movie, I'm not looking for a reason to rewatch it to see if I can change my opinion. And I I guess I differ from critics in that response. I don't think there's a hard definition for a critic, but I will say if I had such a bad time, there's no reason for I I'm I'm not saying maybe there's something in the movie that I missed. Sure, and, and yeah, I, it's totally fair. <laughs> and and I don't. I, I guess we don't really need to relitigate this one because we've ha- spent an entire episode talking about it. But this is the movie where I go, there are themes that he is going for that are so incomplete to me. And and you believe that this is this is um, a master working at, at like basically bringing a full onslaught of, of the uh, play within TV, within movie. I had a good time with it, and that's why I want to rewatch it. And I would understand why you wouldn't. I think I generally find myself wanting to rewatch movies I didn't like years after the fact. For example, First Reformed is a movie that I saw at the Telluride Film Festival when I got to go as a college student, and I really did not like it. And it got a ton of critical praise that year, got an Oscar nomination ultimately, and I've heard a lot of critics praise it since. And it's a movie that I think I would appreciate watching again. It's just I'm an older and different person than the first time I saw it. And I think that's when it might make sense to rewatch something. I'm not going to go back and rewatch other movies I hated, but who knows? Maybe one day I'll get you to watch Asteroid City again. So, Christian, let's look at Wes Anderson's debut film. And that is Bottle Rocket from 1996. Christian, can you quickly, because I know that you have rewatched this more recently than me, sum up just the kind of the basic details and the plot of Bottle Rocket for the listeners? Right, so Luke Wilson is, uh, it, like, uh, what I think he, it looks like he's in his early 30s. He might be late 20s, but <laughs> Luke Wilson is the main character, and he leaves, or as the tail end of a mental institution that he checked himself into, because he was undergoing severe 
depression and anxiety. And it basically details his efforts alongside his friend. Uh, well, wait, what, what, what is Luke Wilson's name in this movie? Let me, let me, Anthony. let me, let me, Anthony. Okay. So Anthony, and then Owen Wilson is playing Dignan as the two of them are going into a, um, midlife-ish crisis basically as to they're not maturing they don't have any uh real jobs and it's following them on their path as they figure out whether or not they should or want to actually mature in life that's that's it's it's also a heist movie ish but the heist isn't really that important you know it's much more so the romance that Anthony develops, um, Dignant's place as he looks at the romance that's going on, Dignant's place as he realizes he's dragging his friends into situations they don't want to be in, them facing bullies. It, it, it's really a kind of a hangout movie with with man children. And it, it, it doesn't use any fancy camera techniques. It's not incredible um, production design. It's, it's really... Um, the most Wes Andersonian thing about this is the fact that he's dealing with man children. <laughs> yes, it is very much a debut feature situated in the American indie scene of the 90s. Comes out in 96. The feature gets made because Wes and Owen and Luke debut their short film Bottle Rocket at the Sundance Film Festival. It gets some attention and they get funding for the feature film version. And they also notably get one a a few established actors but one majorly established actor they get to join the proceedings is james Kahn, in his only performance in a wes anderson movie playing mr henry who is this small-time criminal that dignan looks up to immensely and is, is guiding a lot of dignan's desires for things like the heist and finding his place in the world so christian bottle rocket not very stereotypically andersonian of course his debut feature where does it rank for you on your Wes Anderson ranked list? This movie rules. For me, it's number two. Number two? Early on. This movie this movie absolutely rules. It is a hangout movie. Luke Wilson's fantastic. Luke Wilson is so... In, in this, this might be my favorite performance out of any of the ones he's had in his 11 movies. And this is his... De- debut performance well i guess you mean yes. out of wes anderson movies of all wes anderson's movies oh oh so you mean luke wilson in this movie is your favorite oh wow okay yeah wow so based on my recollections of bottle rocket that i, I don't think you're insane <laughs> because they're very good here uh owen wilson though seems like the real winner of this movie for me because i came away from bottle rocket thinking that dignan might just be one of my favorite wes anderson characters ever (laughs) he is so full of himself so foolhardy (laughs) and therefore fun to watch the kind of character you love watching in movies but maybe you wouldn't want to hang out with in real life (laughs) and i just remember being so drawn to him and not necessarily to luke wilson luke wilson also he's really attractive in this movie by the way i double checked he's 25 it, as Bottle Rocket comes out. So you thought early 30s? No. He's just got an old man's facial features. <laughs> he, he's he's very attractive in this movie. And I fully believe the romance that he has with the housemaid. Now, wh- where does this rank for you? So Bottle Rocket for me. Again, remembering that I do not dislike, let alone hate, any Wes Anderson movies. Bottle Rocket for me is actually down at 10. We have it in the exact opposite spots. And for me... Again, I I talked about this on some of our episodes this month. The Grand Budapest Hotel is where I came in with Wes Anderson. And so my first Anderson film was this big, elaborate period piece with Alexandre Dusplat music and Robert Yeoman, uh, his refined camera work. And Yeoman is actually still the cinematographer on this movie, but you can very much tell that he and Anderson are... They're just starting to refine, to work on this visual style that they're going to refine uh, through the next few movies. As much as I love these characters, I, I, I also love when Wes gets that big ensemble cast to work with. So for me, it's it's not that I dislike Bottle Rocket, far from it. I, I wanted to rewatch it for this episode and ultimately wasn't able to. It's just that I see it as this promise of things to come for Wes, as opposed to him not quite peaking for you because this isn't your number one. But, you know, hitting that early, early peak and then falling off as his career goes, I, I think he gets better with time as opposed to being that good out of the gate. Well, I, I will say, 
this is not the Wes Anderson movie that I started with. I did start with a pretty bombastic one. So I, I guess I did. I mean, this isn't a major celebrity ensemble cast, but this is, there are many, many characters who get even like two lines. And so it, it, it's still there. It's just not Margot Robbie coming in for 30 seconds in Asteroid City. Hey, and she's got a full five-minute scene, brother. <laughs> and she's in one photograph. <laughs> she and, Yes, but for this movie, it, it felt I know, I know like what you by mean. not... Yeah. What? Oh, I know what you mean. Because, like, yeah. Bottle Rocket feels like a great American indie in, in the 90s when yes. indie movies were booming. And I know what draws you to these types of movies. And so it's completely unsurprising to me <laughs> that Bottle I, Rocket I is do, this high for you. I do think that the chemistry between the characters is incredible. And, man, Luke Luke Wilson in this performance is is is, is oh, top tier. That That is... If I could redo the Oscars this year, he'd get a nomination from me. One of the beautiful things about early Wes Anderson movies is that Owen Wilson is his writing partner, and they write the first few scripts together. So you have real-life friends and brothers making movies together. Robert Musgrave, is that his name? Who's Yeah, Robert Musgrave is the third lead as their, their getaway driver. And even Andrew Wilson, the third Wilson brother, shows up in a supporting part. So you have these people, many of whom are friends in real life, making these movies together. And you can feel that natural chemistry that they bring into it that obviously some debut filmmakers just don't have. Because maybe they wrote a great script, they get a chance to direct it, but they're trying to form all these relationships and it gets messy. Whereas Wes and the Wilsons get to bring that with them to this movie and it just makes it better. So Christian, all right. we now yes. move on to Rushmore. Wes Anderson's 1998 follow-up, which follows Max Fisher, a per extremely precocious high school student attending Rushmore Academy, notably as a very poor student, but an extremely active one, creating all kinds of clubs, and things take a turn for him when he finds out that he is going to be put on academic probation, he develops a crush on a teacher, Miss Cross, and also starts building a bit of an odd friendship with one of the parents of other students at Rushmore, who's played by Bill Murray in his first appearance in a Wes Anderson movie. I got to say, Christian, re-watching Rushmore, I, I bumped it up a little bit for myself. I really liked it the first time I watched it. I, I pretty much loved it the second time around. And for me, it came in ranked at number three for my... It is, it is number list. three for me as well. Wow, look at us, Christian. Okay, but, speak on I, it. But I have... I didn't rewatch it. I've seen it twice. I feel like I have a solid grasp on the chemistry between Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray. Um, Jason Schwartzman is absolutely unhinged in this movie. Uh, and by that, I mean his character is, it needs, needs help. His character needs to be put away. Very much so. But there's, I don't know. There, there's something about him making these war plays and explosions occurring and and like I, I, the, the, them but i also like that it's not dealing with high school students it's dealing with like the interaction between a child and a man and how that man sees himself in that child and how that child is trying so hard to be that man and and, and if if that's like the thesis for wes anderson movies yeah, they're the the man child of uh, <laughs> of Bill Murray in this movie is pretty funny, and it's funny to see how Max like it's truly funny. Haha, ha, I laugh at the movie to see how Max Fisher gets to <laughs> both aspire to be like someone as he aspires to be like Herman Bloom, the Bill Murray character, and also turns around and attempts to be a mentor to a younger student at Rushmore Academy named Dirk Calloway, who's played by Mason Gamble, and it. <laughs> I, 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 one of the reasons that this movie grew in my estimations is I feel like the these character relationships are so clearly sketched out and understood by Wes and Owen as the writers, and, and of course Wes as the director, as you get to see the way the different ways that Max relates to Dirk or other or even other students, or compared to how he relates to Herman. How he tries to be a romantic lead for Miss Cross, who's played by. Olivia Williams. And there's also this running through line of people dealing with the problems of their life and that informs their personality. So Max has lost his mother. She died years before the events of the movie and she encouraged him to be a writer 
And so now he's staging these elaborate plays at school. We find out that Miss Cross lost her husband, and she's also been dealing with some grief in, in that loss. She's young. He was young. It's a shame. And you can see why she may have this, you know, sort of mentorly connection that she tries to build with Max. But of course, he's romantically interested in her. And Herman is also, like cheating on his Luke wife. Wilson. And going through a divorce, so <laughs> Luke, Luke, Wilson. Luke Wilson as 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 oh man, Olivia's Olivia's like boyfriend at one point, right? Well, I think sort of. It's implied that they're maybe going on a date, and then there's a very funny scene with the four of them at a restaurant. Um, inside at a restaurant. <laughs> It's it's incredible. Oh man, I, I I think that these movies just make me realize how much I love Luke Wilson, and I wish he was in more stuff. Yeah, Luke Wilson, blend of the month. I, I guess not blend anymore because we're changing that too, listeners. Hey, but <laughs> a Luke Wilson theme for the month as we talk through his non Wes Anderson films. Uh, okay, should we move on to his next movie? Sure. The one thing I do want to say, I, I also appreciate about Rushmore, is you can start to see that visual style forming. Some of the things that Wes is now known for more widely. The production design is great. Yeah. It's, and, but it's I think it's well-employed also. Yeah, it's stepped up without being dominant. This Rushmore Academy, you can imagine a Wes Anderson movie at a sort of Richie Rich school going one direction, but it, it's still a low budget. He's working in the indie scene. You know, this is shot at a real school. There are scenes. It's not all at the school. It's not a boarding school. People go home. There's a little community around. So, yes, not overly elaborate. Elaborate in the production's design. Pretty well employed. We both agree there. So, moving on. Another movie that we've now covered on the show this month. It is The Royal Tenenbaums. His third film and one of his big breakthrough features. Getting him his very first Oscar nomination. Along with Owen Wilson for writing the screenplay. In case you missed that episode, it follows the Tenenbaum family, who are, there's three children who were childhood geniuses, all of whom have hit challenges in their life, and they are brought back together with their mother and father, who had been divorced after Royal Tenenbaum. The father discloses to them all that he has a terminal illness, and he's trying to reconcile with all of them now in his, what may be his final days. So, Christian... Since we have a whole episode about this, we obviously don't need to talk about it too much, but where does the Royal Tenenbaums fall for you in terms of your Wes Anderson list? So I have the Royal Tenenbaums at five. I have I, it at four, so we're in very similar okay. spots. I like the Royal Tenenbaums. Again, I, <laughs> this is just a theme at this point. Luke Wilson's my favorite character in this movie. I mean, he's, he's I, fantastic He's <laughs> in, in this movie. And, and, and it has maybe the funniest line of all Wes Anderson movies. I wrote a suicide letter. Is it dark? Of course it is. It's a suicide letter, which is just incredible. It's a good one. Um, um, but I I'm held back because of because of the problematic nature of Royal Tenenbaum himself. I do I I, I don't know. I don't gel with all of the performances. I, I think that Margot Tenenbaum is fantastic. You're going to Patrick fan? Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson are the two that I'm gravitating towards. I was not gravitating towards Gene Hackman and uh, and uh, Ben Stiller. Not liking Gene Hackman and the Royal Tenenbaums. I know you have problems with the character, but that's a little suspect. I'm just going to be real. <laughs> he's incredible here. He's amazing here. I don't. I, it sometimes feels like he's in a different movie. I think that's almost the point. I, I don't feel that way, but I think his gregarious and self-impressive nature is so key to who he is that it's almost like he grows beyond the scope of the movie and enters an entirely different movie plus you have the behind the scenes conflict between hackman and anderson should we continue to litigate royal tenenbaums or or should we move on to life aquatic let's move on christian there's a whole episode about the royal tenenbaums Mm -hmm. folks if you'd like to go back and hear much much more about that movie so Number four for me, number five for Christian, and we move on to The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Christian, you mind if I pass it to you to talk through the details here? I have seen this once. I did not revisit it, it but I also did not really want to. <laughs> so it's, it. no, Bill Murray is the star. He is the titular Steve Zissou. He's an oceanographer who is searching for the jaguar shark that apparently, I, I think he discovered once or 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 saw his partner yes it ate esteban 
It ate his partner, and it's it's him kind of bringing his dysfunctional family along as they try to find it. Where do you have this ranked? I actually have this as my number 11. This is at the bottom of the list for me. Again, not a movie I dislike, but it is my least favorite, Wes Anderson. This is, I have this at nine. This is, I just, I found it boring. Like, I didn't find the chase exciting. And I kind of felt like uh, that, it's a pretty simple straightforward plot you know a man grabs his family together but it felt like there was too much he couldn't balance well the plot and the mechanics of the families talking about needing to find this and all that time on the boat i just didn't care about so it i i go go yourself yeah i i mean i again i like the movie but i agree that there are moments that drag and notably this is his longest film it's a it's just a touch under two hours but wes's biggest budget at the time after the success of rushmore and the royal tenenbaums and some oscars attention he then gets to work with 50 million dollars and unfortunately it is not a box office success making it back but i think for a lot of people uh the life aquatic now has grown estimation it's become a much more beloved anderson film but for a lot of people at the time, and still some now, like us, it's an unfortunate low point for Anderson, especially after he has a success, then he uses that opportunity to try something, like take a big swing by his standards, and it, it doesn't necessarily work. I also, I, I, there are some... I remember the chase on the island. I don't remember anything that happened before that. There, yeah. Well, I, like the setup, yeah, but just the chase in the island, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And that's the only thing that really sticks in my memory. Right. There's To me, what I remember the most is that there's a lot of fun Andersonian design with the, the ship that they're using to explore the ocean. There's a lot of fun creatures with stop motion or puppets, some of these tools that Anderson starts pulling out of his filmmaking bag more and more often. Plus, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett's in The Life Aquatic and. If you can get Kate Blanchett in your movie, you do it. True. <laughs> There's also a, right. a key character uh, here played by Owen Wilson, who is introduced as potentially the long-lost son of Steve Zissou, and they start bonding and building this relationship. And I just, I, I've never been able to fully appreciate how they resolve Wilson's character, unfortunately. So that's that always holds me back for Steve Zissou. Let's let's move on to the Darjeeling Limited. That is right. The Darjeeling Limited, another movie that is almost famous for being most people's least favorite Wes Anderson movie or the least appreciated. It stars Adrian Brody, Owen Wilson, and Jason Schwartzman returning. Because uh, I think this may be his first first Anderson movie since Rushmore, but I'm probably wrong about that. But we have Schwartzman, Wilson, Brody playing brothers who agree to meet in India and go on a spiritual journey a year after their father's death. I, have recently... I don't hate this movie. Okay. I don't hate it. Okay. Christian doesn't hate Darjeeling. I don't hate it either. As I've said, for the 50th time, I don't dislike any of these movies. But... Sure. Sure. But but I do. And this is not one of the ones that I hate. <laughs> um, I have it at eight. I have it at nine. So again, very similar places. It is... I I, I actually like the brother dynamic... But there's something that holds you back when it's three white brothers traveling through India and tons and tons and tons and tons of Indian extras and characters. So I guess props for that, except they are not at the center of this movie whatsoever. It feels like one of those let the white man go somewhere else to find their own enlightenment movies. Also, I never talk about Darjeeling Limited. And, and, and I do think that I, there are Wes Anderson movies that I will rave about. I mean, re-watching Bottle Rocket at, at work, everyone heard every single day for like a week and a half straight how much Bottle Rocket's amazing. After watching Darjeeling Limited, I remember thinking, I like that movie. And that's it. I have never thought about it again. <laughs> yeah, it's I. there are a couple of moments that I think about from the Darjeeling Limited. And I'll, I'll explain one in a moment. I do think, particularly, the biggest problem for many people, of course, is you have these three brothers exploring India on a spiritual journey. And 
Wes Anderson decided to make this movie as sort of an homage to the great Indian filmmaker Satyajit Ray, inspired mm-hmm. by some of his other films. And unfortunately, it, you know, it, it is tough that Wes takes the route of having these three American guys <laughs> go overseas. I think it he sidesteps and dodges the full-blown using India for a spiritual journey by showing us just how effed up these guys are they are they're on their bad behavior the entire way through (laughs) and they're constantly fighting constantly at each other's throats they're disrespectful they get kicked off a train you know they and later on in the movie they do have a much more spiritual experience connecting with a small village of people away from the cities away from the, the touristy spiritual sites and i think that 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 resolves some of the concerns I had about that particular issue in terms of just how they approach it in this movie. And, and again, I, I'm just another white guy, so <laughs> my perspective is biased, but that's that was my take on that. It, 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 having to think about that, though, you know, not how you want to approach the movie. The Wes Anderson appreciates people from different cultures and makes many movies that are homages or odes to who have influenced him. And rarely does he ever cast someone of that culture, though, at the center of it. There's one notable exception that we'll come up with that I I, I still think has some problems to it, but it's... It's one of those, it's the white guy learning from another culture, but it's still about the white guy. And and he's never really managed to blend it all perfectly for me. One thing I did want to point out, as you as you have pointed out, not, no image or anything realistic streaming from this movie. You talk about Luke Wilson being quite handsome in previous Anderson movies. Adrian. Adam Brody is a different actor. <laughs> but what I would say is actually... I don't know if Jason Schwartzman has ever looked so beautiful on screen. There is a moment. Okay, that I mean that's a good. That's actually a good point. This might still edge it out for me. There's this. There's a moment where his character, who's this depressed and struggling writer, see writer, see an actor. He's a writer. This like struggling writer, just goes for a smoke and sticks his head out onto the train to get some of this fresh night air and his hair is blowing in the wind and he's lit just so for a moment i'm just like man this is jason sportsman the god's gift to man put him on people magazine and i don't know if he is but i did double check this is his first film with anderson since rushmore he had grown 10 years in that time since since rushmore released and i do think it's a very good performance from him accompanied by a short film that he made that west made with schwartzman and natalie portman which is apparently supposed to be watched before Darjeeling Limited. I got a DVD that featured the both of them and allowed me to do that, and it was a very satisfying experience. So if you're able to, listeners, I recommend it. I'm not sure what the normal streaming availability of Hotel Hotel Chevalier is, but yeah, check it out there. Moving on, Christian. We're moving on to, this is uh, my guess for your favorite, and I'm curious to see if I'm right. That movie is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Wes Anderson's 2009 animated debut feature. Fantastic Mr. Fox is a perfect 5 out of 5 star movie. It is beautiful. The stop motion animation, the the fur, the clay. And and I, I watched this after watching um, Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs definitely looks like he tried to clean up some of the claymation. But man, does like the... the, like the, the slightly more oh what what is it slightly lesser frame rate of fantastic mr fox works so much better in its absolutely this is my number one absolutely this is my number one what is this for you it's at number five and part of that reason you okay 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 i've made you very angry i've you, made you, you very have... angry i get that this is how you're punishing me Maybe okay you're... fine no it's not because it's number five out of 11 <laughs> and of the movies above it. I have rewatched three of them. So I have not rewatched Fantastic Mr. Fox since the first time I saw it. And as you have heard with Rushmore and ultimately with the Burial Tenant Bombs as well, often these movies grow in my estimations as I revisit them. The only movie that I have not had that experience with so far is The Life Aquatic, where it kind of stayed the same after I gave it a rewatch. But I really, really like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I wanted to fit it in and I just was not able to with 
my family's travel schedule this week, but just a very, very fun and warm and, and beautiful to look at movie. Uh, if, if you're not familiar, listeners, it does follow George Clooney playing the titular Mr. Fox as he tries to get back to his old ways of crime and goes on a spree of thefts against some farmers to provide for his Fox family. Wait, wait, wait. Something Bunsen Bean. But yes. So, something. Who's, who's the first one? Bogus Bunsen, Bunsen Bean. One short, one fat, one lean. Indeed. <laughs> though yes. different in looks. Wait, wait, wait. Though different in looks. Something crooks. Um, I don't know. I forgot. I forgot. I gave up. Adapted from a Roald Dahl book. So there's some of that. That There's that fun storybook childlike energy where you have those rhyming schemes with, with the farmers. And, and you have a sort of silly adventure. But it makes sense, again, because this is a story originally intended for children. And I think Anderson and his, you know, his crew made a movie that is enjoyable by easily enjoyable by all it, it's a beautiful movie to look at and it's easily accessible for families i think kids can really get a kick out of this one even though i came to it as a grown-up <laughs> we haven't uh, mentioned this it, christian but notably this is a collaboration with noah Baumbach, who would become a key mm-hmm. writing and producing partner with anderson around this time he also collaborated with him on the life aquatic and i think that's yeah those are the two movies they wrote together but anderson also produced a Bombach movie called the squid and the whale so they're collaborating at this time i think didn't i think wes anderson also co-wrote squid and the whale i could be wrong okay i got it bogus buns and bean one fat one short one lean these horrible crooks so different in looks were nonetheless equally mean man okay the and 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 here's here's we're gonna spend at least another minute on fantastic mr fox because it is great and this is why meryl streep meryl streep who plays his (laughs) wife continuously asks him why it is that he can't grow up and i believe that this is the greatest exemplification of wondering why you're like this wes anderson himself is probably a man child and the only reason I know this is because there are reports that for Scarlett Johansson's nude scene, he was too embarrassed to actually be behind the camera. Which in a way isn't so much man-child as it is underdeveloped. I don't know. It's a different kind of man-child. I think, I, I think underdeveloped is a key component of being a man-child. And Meryl Streep is like, why? And he's dragging this along. And also, also with, um, oh man, with, with, with... <laughs> Uh, Jason Schwartzman's Ash in this movie. The grouchy son of Mr. Fox. The the grouchy son who doesn't think that there's anything different about him, even though he's so emo. And and, and, uh, Meryl Streep needs to be like, no, you are different. And not necessarily that's okay. A little that's okay, but also acknowledge how it is that you're different from other people and it's like um it's it, it's tackling that centrality of yeah you are dysfunctional why it doesn't mean you need to be functional it just means you need to try to understand it the animation's gorgeous the plot is so beautiful all of the aside the, the i laugh every single time it's it's the one wes anderson movie where all of the asides actually make me laugh instead of making me wonder why they're there <laughs> it's it's it, it, oh it's it's, I'm not saying that, look, for other movies, sometimes the asides work, sometimes they don't for this one. Man, and the whole, like, the, the, oh, where is it? He has his ending monologue. So, so George Clooney has his ending monologue, which is, they say, all foxes are slightly allergic to linoleum, but it's cool to the paw. They say, my tail needs to be dry cleaned twice a month, but now it's fully detachable. They say, our tree may never grow back, but one day something will. It's it's like a story about Icarus flying too close to the sun, like Mr. Fox feeling like he needs to pull in this last heist. And every time he does it, like the living conditions for his family deteriorate. But it's about being hopeful, despite the fact that your eccentricities have drawbacks. And that, to me, is so beautiful because it it feels like it's Wes Anderson looking at himself and being like, it's okay that I'm weird. And that's 
Wesley. That's what I love. Oh, man. Perfect movie. For the longest time, I held back from giving it the five-star rating, but this movie's perfect. Also, his shortest movie. This one clocks in at a crisp 87 minutes with credits. So, easy to fit in unless you're traveling through South Carolina on a family vacation and the Wi-Fi at your parents' rental goes out. That is when it is hard to fit in the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. After that, Wes would return to live-action filmmaking with 2012's Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Christian, you alright? You just took a heavy intake of breath. <laughs> no, I, I had to burp. Um. Okay. Moonrise Kingdom follows two new-to-film performers, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward, as they play Sam and Susie, a khaki scout, which is a Wes Anderson-styled boy scout, and a young girl. Uh, we should say they're... they're I believe 12, they're 12 in this movie, who run away together and follow up, follow up their Romeo and Juliet story. Meanwhile, they get chased by Sam's scout troop, the police officer of this island that they are on, and Susie's family, all of whom are trying to track them down as a storm brews in the background and threatens their safety. This is a Wes Anderson movie that I was able to revisit, and I'm glad I did, because it was... Maybe the the longest moment from from now to when I first saw it. It's one that I'd only seen once before. It was in my pre letterbox days, Christian. I had not seen it <laughs> since then. So where does Moonrise Kingdom land for you? It fell for me. It used to be number two. It is currently number seven. Oh, it fell quite a bit for you, Christian. This one actually grew for me. It, it grew, I, I put it right after Mr. Fox at number six. So similar spots on our list, but it's trending down for you and trending up for me. I didn't like the children. Oh, Christian. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and it's it's not their acting performance. Well, maybe a little bit. I, I, do, I, I will say, for, for both Gilman and Hayward, there are some moments where you can tell this is their first time in a, in a big production like this. But I, I tended to enjoy them. It felt engineered. It felt like he was trying to force adult tendencies onto children. Like it, it felt like kids were being told what it meant to be young and in love. And I didn't like that. Um, and this, like, sometimes the camera's a little fuzzy, actually. And I think it's supposed to give it, like, a dreamlike state. But it didn't... I, it, it didn't let me appreciate them, really. Yeah, I, Yeoman and and Anderson are filming on. They were they shot the film on super sixteen millimeter, and they normally use thirty five millimeter anamorphic, which our friend Hannah Perella taught us about a couple episodes ago. So, using a different type of film and camera than they normally use to give it that grainier film like dreamlike look, and I think something that you identify is that these two kids they do feel a little bit more adult-ish but i think what stood out to me about their story that that drew me in is that both of these two people these two young people are victims of their circumstances we find out that sam is an orphan and that he's not getting along with his foster family and in fact very early on in the movie bruce willis who is in his only wes anderson film here playing the police captain of this island calls his foster family to inform them of his disappearance, and they say they don't even want to take him back because he's been such a problem. The scout troop, he doesn't get along with them. None of them like him. Susie, we find out, is going through some problems at home because her parents are in the middle of a divorce. Frances McDormand and, and Bill Murray play her parents. Frances McDormand is cheating on Bill Murray's father character with the Bruce Willis character. And the father is, is violent and not with the kids, but he, he'll throw things around or he'll you'll be angry and just as prone to outbursts and she's pretty depressed because of it all and you find this story of these two young people finding respite in one another and it's not just a simple love story to me so what really stood out is that these two are really the only other people who accept the other for who they are when they have a problem like when sam says something that offends Susie. He ultimately says, I'm sorry. He apologizes for it, tells her that he agrees with her and that he wants to reconnect. And they have this genuine grown-up connection as these two people struggling through the difficulties of childhood and the harshness of life that they've had to face early on. And the maturity of that story, I 
you're not the first person I've heard say it makes them out to be too adult-like and therefore too too fake even by Anderson standards to engage with. But to me, it, it just made the story a little bit richer. Any Anything else that, I mean, obviously it's not the bottom of your list, so anything that you do appreciate about the movie, even if it's trending down for you? I kind of like Edward Norton in this. <laughs> He's great. I, Playing the I, scoutmaster of the troop that Sam is a part of. Who's trying really hard to make sense of the kids and he just can't because the kids suck. It it, it really made sense. <laughs> One of the, the great bits of Andersonian design is early on in the movie before they discover Sam has disappeared. Norton's character wakes up and has this morning routine where we see... One of the scouts is ironing his bandana or whatever the flag-like thing that scouts wear is. Uh, another gives him a rundown of the inventory. One is working on breakfast. Someone's raising the flag. <laughs> you see all this almost military-like regimentation of the scouts, which only grows later on as they get to this larger camp with other scout troops for the summer ju- jamboree or something, whatever it's called. Yeah, it, the, the military comparisons for the scouts are funny. And based on Anderson's childhood, being in the scouts so the movie after moonrise kingdom yes is grand budapest hotel yes it is moonrise kingdom another film nominated for the screenplay which which wes wrote with roman coppola beginning their writing collaboration then things really kick off or really break through with the grand budapest hotel previously discussed on this show big oscar success wins four and nominated for nine makes 173 million dollars this is your number one this, this is, is number my one. number one it's not only one of my favorite wes anderson movies but it is permanently one of my favorite films of all time uh this is one of those movies that showed me the things that movies could be beyond what i had known i will always 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 love the ray fines performance i think he's hysterical at the center of this movie and the theme of nostalgia and the way that anderson and Coppola used these this Russian doll story structure to explore it is extremely moving to me. And it will always be, I think, my number one Anderson film. As I said, sometimes we change as people and our tastes on movies change with it. So call me in 20 years and we'll see. Christian, how are you going to hurt me? Where does this land for you on your list? It's not 11. It is not 11. This is true. You can't hurt me that bad. <laughs> but it is 10. But it is 10 because you... Yeah, you've explained why. <laughs> it's available for all of our favorite listeners out there to hear. <laughs> I've and and it's not even you you can't even tell me watch it again because I've seen it three times. You have seen it three times. And it's a great shame, Christian, that you've not seen the light in any of those three times. But if you do want to hear more of our thoughts, why I love it so much, why Christian has grown to dislike it, and also just some genuinely insightful thoughts from a new friend of the show, Hannah Perella, who is a cinematographer and explained a lot of the cameras, like the literal cameras they were using and the camera techniques that they were using on this film to create the look. Super insightful stuff from her. So check out that episode. The um, You also don't want me to watch this movie again because the first time I saw it, I gave it three stars, the second time two and a half, and the third time two. Don't even don't go there with me, Christian. It, uh, five, five, five. You got to get five with the heart. Five with the heart. You gotta you gotta get there with Grand Budapest Hotel. Following the Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes cashes his huge Oscar success and giant box office success in and makes another animated film. That being an original animated film this time, it is Isle of Dogs, the 2018 film that once again he. Uh, actually, he wrote the screenplay himself, but the story is credited to with Roman Coppola. Jason Schwartzman, one of his first writing credits, with maybe his only writing credit with Wes Anderson, and Kunichi Nomura, a Japanese writer, jumping in because this is a film set in Japan, where a fictional canine influenza pandemic has caused a tyrannical mayor to ban all dogs from the fictional city of Megasaki to this island that becomes known as Isle of Dogs. And ultimately, a young boy loses his dog, and so he goes to the island trying to track him down and save him. So, Wes Anderson movie, set in Japan, we're exploring the world again, just like in the Darjeeling Limited, and featuring talking dogs. What could go wrong? (laughs) Christian, where does Isle of Dogs land for you? This is four for me. Number four. Where's it for you? So, I have to say, I again, Isle of Dogs is one of those Anderson films that I've only seen once. I gave it four stars at the time. I remember really liking it. 
But as of now, it's at number eight for me, only because there are okay. other movies that I've seen more recently. Right, right, right. And I just haven't been able to revisit Isle of Dogs and refresh it in my memory. But because you have seen it more recently, I know, go ahead and speak on why it grew in your estimations from your first watch to now. The first time I watched it, I liked it-ish, but felt like it suffered from the white savior complex again. Because one of the notable characters is Greta Gerwig, uh, who is the white exchange student. From in Cincinnati, your... Ohio. Let's go, Ohio from Cincinnati, Ohio, who is driving some of the plot. And I didn't like that. Rewatching it, though, she has a much smaller part of the plot than I remember her to have. And I do think there's great care in having the character speak in Japanese with no subtitles, but instead with just... um, it, at times interpreters at times just a facial expression on this anime on these animated people's faces so that you can get what it is that they're going for the plot is pretty int- it, it, it's it, it's pretty interesting um i am pro dog and so maybe that's why i gave moonrise kingdom less stars because uh, there's a notable dog that dies in that movie there is there's a dog death <laughs> no and they're the the vocal performances are stellar. They're truly, truly fantastic. Most notably, um, I I think that this is Edward Norton's best ever performance in a Wes Anderson movie. The best Edward Norton in a Wes Anderson movie. I love it. <laughs> there's he's there's... A, he's a dog in this movie, folks. There's there's a lot of human characters, but he is voicing a dog. <laughs> now, the plot at times is convoluted. And I do think there's an issue a little bit with translating or having the dog speak in English instead of having them also speak in Japanese and just honestly forcing the subtitles there. But, man, is this a cool time. And you really do... It's it's one of the best man's best friend movies where... Generally, it, it genuinely is the relationship between a human and their dog and what that can propel them to. Absolutely. I, the, one of the, the major feelings I remember having watching this movie is just how sweet and touching it is watching the, the young boy, who we should say is, is, is named Atari, and he's voiced mm-hmm. by Koya Rankin, or Koyu Rankin, sorry. Uh, of course, him being named Atari, one of those things that didn't sit well with critics of the film as they were exploring whether Anderson appropriated Japanese culture for this movie or not. But Atari gets uh, a few moments with these dogs, particularly Chief, who's voiced by Brian Cranston, who's sort of the lead dog from what I can remember, as they get to bond and Chief gets to experience the love of a human again. There, there's some genuine sweetness here that is explored. And again, making Isle of Dogs a movie that, unfortunately, a lot of people associate animation with family films or with children. It's, of course, a movie that can be enjoyed by grown-ups and, for this, in this case, kids alike. Really, uh, a movie that I think is just a very sincerely well-done film, but also one that can be enjoyed by children in ways that other Anderson films definitely cannot <laughs> in most circumstances. Also, Scarlett Johansson's first appearance in an Anderson film, uh, among, among others. And she would, of course, go on to appear in a later Anderson film, Asteroid City. <laughs> This is, I do think it's a movie to check out. It's not a kid's movie, but it does play with kid sensibilities a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's rated PG from what I can remember. Do you, correct? Do you, can you correct me there if I'm wrong? I can check it right now. Uh, but if it's rated PG, that's wrong. <laughs> it shouldn't be. <laughs> okay. Maybe, uh, maybe. There's, there's, wrong. there's very much so the word bitch in this movie more oh. than once. Oh, interesting. <laughs> maybe because it's about dogs <laughs> making it the first pg-13 rated animation to be nominated for an academy award so it's pg-13 look at that isle of dogs is pg-13 so maybe i was wrong about kids enjoying it <laughs> i should have watched this before making that endorsement either way isle of dogs a very good film even though it's low on my list higher on christians which brings us to anderson's next live action film and that of course is the french dispatch his 2021 movie, once again written with Roman Coppola and Hugo Guinness, his collaborator from The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Jason Schwartzman, once again, getting a story credit with those other two co-writers. 
The French Dispatch is an anthology film. It's styled after the final issue of this titular magazine or newspaper called The French Dispatch and features different segments. One about an incarcerated painter, one about these student protests inspired by real protests in France that happened in the 60s, another about this uh, kidnapping of a police commissioner's son, and some other things interspersed along the way. Christian, The French Dispatch since I saw it in theaters, has remained my number two Wes Anderson film. I have it much higher than Interesting. Most. I have it much higher than most. Where does it rank for you? I, I've not been... I know we're running out of numbers at this point, but <laughs> I have not been keeping track. Uh, it's, it's my number six. Number six. So I remember liking The French Dispatch, but thinking it was too long. Which is weird considering it's actually not that long, but it's it, – it, it just – I do remember that I liked the first story. I liked the second story, and by the time we got to the third story, I'm like, this is dragging. So it's – it's not – I mean, yeah, it is kind of bonkers in, in terms of when you have even Sir Ronan's animated section, and, and it's one of those what, – what, what is this doing here? But – it, it's it's a lot of fun and and it's it's one of those where I could kind of see the care and the love that he had for newspapers and how he wanted to animate everything this much and how he wanted to truly showcase what it is that different individuals who care about news in some way shape or form could have and what legacy means so I appreciated that as much as the movie I, I felt like could be parsed down a little bit yeah i mean it's it's funny that you identified as being too long and really it's not about length it's about you've you're feeling a loss of momentum a loss of steam but it's still not even an hour and 50 minutes you know anderson typically does not make long movies it's it's his third longest at 108 minutes but i i do understand obviously with with an anthology structure if you just don't get into a particular story segment you're going to have trouble with the movie because of the way that it, it, the way that it segments things. I, I do recall just being fully swept away in this movie and the variety of each of the segments really worked for me and it allowed me to sit with each story segment for just the right amount of time before being carried off to the next thing. And there are some moments from this movie, uh, you know, we're, we're two years since seeing it in theaters, but there are some moments from the movie that have really stuck with me, uh, especially Timothy Chalamet making his debut Anderson performance as I, his character. That was my favorite section, him and Francis McDormand. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty great. And his character gets an ending, shall we say. And this movie is primarily in black and white, though it, as you noted, there's an animated moment uh, during the with featuring Sir Sharonin and the animated. This movie's car not sequence. primarily in black and white. Is it not? That story? No, that story is in black and white, but the movie is not. I am pretty sure it is Christian because Benicio del Toro is also in black and white, and he is from the first segment. I remember this pretty distinctly. Uh, then is it the overlay, like the narrative structure that's in color? Might it might be. It might be. There are scenes oh. interspersed that feature Bill Murray as the publisher of this paper as they put out the last issue. And maybe he's just died, and that's why they're they're putting out the final issue. But there are flashes of color in some of these black and white sequences, including Timothy Chalamet's character and the way they kind of resolve what happens with him during the second sequence, where things have really stuck with me. I, I, I just really was swept along with The French Dispatch, and it received some major criticisms for being extremely Andersonian, which it is. He, it's very dioramic in its production design, in its shot setup. There are moments that you feel like Anderson wished that he was a photographer instead of a filmmaker, where he could have just captured this particular moment and hung it on a wall somewhere. But of course, he did that in a way with film. You can always pause. And the elaborate production design, the, the beautiful setup of each of these shot compositions, and the, to me, compelling individual stories all added up to one very beautiful feature one two that i think emotionally struck a chord is this sort of elegiac reflective type of type of film 
Any any other French dispatch thoughts, Christian, before we start to wrap things up here? The main thought I have is that when you texted me, you said, I don't want this episode to go too long. I didn't, but we had lots to say. <laughs> you understand that every time we go too long, it's your fault. That is not entirely true. You you specifically noted that you wanted to talk more about the fantastic Mr. Fox. You, you claimed extra time. <laughs> I did. I claimed a minute. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Well, hey, we had a lot of movies to talk about, and that is the wrap-up here for Wes Anderson's film. So, Christian, go ahead and count back your list, just 11 from the bottom to 1, the top. At 11, Asteroid City. At 10, The Grand Budapest Hotel. At 9, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. At 8, The Darjeeling Limited. At 7, Moonrise Kingdom. At 6, The French Dispatch. At 5, The Royal Tenenbaums. At 4, Isle of Dogs. At 3, Rushmore. At 2, Bottle Rocket. And at 1, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I <laughs> I was like, I don't have the Fantastic Mr. Fox at 11. This is wrong. And then I realized I had sorted my list incorrectly. At 11 for me, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. At 10, Bottle Rocket. 9, The Darjeeling Limited. 8, Isle of Dogs. 7, Asteroid City. 6, Moonrise Kingdom. Five, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Four, The World Ten of Bombs. Three, Rushmore. Two, The French Dispatch. And number one, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Christian, okay. thanks for going on this Wes Anderson journey with me mm-hmm. this month. I had a good time. I'm sorry that you didn't. Although I'm glad you got to revisit some movies you liked I, more than I, the ones we talked about you, on the show. I, I, I did it because the movies you chose I hate. <laughs> I, I Like I said, I'm glad you were able to revisit movies that you like more, just not for episodes of the show. Go ahead and tell the folks what is coming up next month here on the To Be Named new podcast. Yes. Well, I mean, y'all will not y'all will not need to worry too much because the new podcast will appear on the same feed. And so it it's don't worry about that. Um, we kind of have a name, but in case we change it, we're going to keep that name to ourselves for a second. In the month of August, we're going to come back and we are going to cover three important movies that are being released this year so we will be covering mission impossible dead reckoning part one we will be covering oppenheimer and we will be covering barbie and then we will be giving our top five movies of the year so far at the end of august i am trembling with excitement to talk about all three of those movies let alone just seeing them in theaters so it's going to be a very good time especially with our brand new branding i mean we're also going to talk about three other movies in the month of August that are new. We just couldn't fit give them an entire episode. And so you're going to get like six movies, whether recommendations or non-recommendations. You're going to get the new branding. Um, we will be – it will be a much more consistent – we're going to record on Monday – and then we will be releasing the episodes on Friday. And then uh, I believe that we will have Nick Viner here for the top five episode because he said he would be here. Uh, I'm trying to lock someone down for the Oppenheimer episode, but Mission Impossible and Barbie are just going to be us two. Oh, baby. Talking Barbie with my main boy, Christian Dubius. It's going to be a great time. The Ken to Absolutely. my Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alrighty, folks, that is not only our show, that's a wrap on Cinema Drip. Crazy. We're closing out a chapter here for the podcast, but we're not going anywhere. We're still having these discussions. We have four seasons. We have been active since 2020. That is crazy. We've been doing this for quite a long time. Thanks to that gosh darned pandemic for getting us to finally put this whole thing together. And if you've been listening since the early Cinema Drip days, we do sincerely thank you. Seriously, thanks for the support. It really means a lot, especially as we continue to record even when we're on vacation. <laughs> in a different time zones. Of course, if you do want to support the show, please stay tuned for our new email that we'll be checking for listener feedback and our new social media where you can follow us, likely on Twitter, potentially other places, and we will be announcing that as it rolls out. We'd love the engagement just to help grow the show, especially with the brand new branding and the brand new format. If you want to follow Christian and myself in the meantime, I'm on Twitter, he's on Instagram, and we are both on Letterboxd. Christian, do you have a public Wes Anderson ranked list? Because I've had mine on private. I'm going to make that bad boy public. I have a Wes Anderson ranked list that is not what it is now. I mean, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox stayed, but it doesn't have Asteroid City or French Dispatch. And I think it has like Moonrise Kingdom at two and Royal Tenenbaums or Rush. I don't know. It's 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 odd. Um, 
in, in that th those are not my rankings right now. So I need to. I'll change it. I'll add the new movies and I'll make it public. There you go. So you can, if you need to refresh yourself on how we feel about these movies, check it out on Letterboxd. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? I will. I've told you this, and I. I'm I'm going to say it so that people hold me to it. I'm trying to get us actual theme music specific to us. It would be so beautiful. Come through a person that we cannot disclose. <laughs> well, we have I, I I have I have a friend signed to a record label. Well, I actually do have a lot of friends in high places. <laughs> I was going to say, we should have asked Nick Viner, noted musician who's appeared on the show multiple times. But we didn't. <laughs> we, I think Nick I'm going to use when I want to use one of his songs. This other friend is going to compose something specifically for us. It, he said he will charge no money. And we appreciate that here on the Cinematic and Podcast. We will, <laughs> and we will give him credit once we start with the new episode <laughs> that's right folks new episode so maybe maybe new music new social media new email all that fun stuff coming in the month of august as we reflect on barbie oppenheimer and mission impossible it's going to be a fantastic time don't miss us too much through the month of july we will be right back stay tuned until next time and technically for the name the last time this has been the cinema drip podcast <laughs>